Today, we have a story of this wonderful world of kite flying. It's whimsical, it's fanciful, but this is also a story of lost and preserved heritage, the things we hold on to when the rug seems to have slipped from under our feet. If we look around today, a lot of the countries that are around us in the region are plagued by war. And things like intangible culture and heritage, they don't seem as important when you're running away from danger. And that's understandable because when your focus is survival, the practice of these traditions more often fall by the wayside, even if they're the one thing that we hold on to when we don't have anything left. It's September 1980. We're in Afghanistan in an area called Jalalabad, about 100 kilometers from the border of Pakistan. There's a young 18-year-old man getting down from one of those big container trucks, and he hops down from the truck and starts walking towards the border. And the only things he has on him are his pakul, a traditional woolen hat, and in his pocket, a piece of string from his kite. And this man knows that he is never coming back. He knew he was never coming back, but what he didn't know was the significance that this little piece of string would have on the rest of his life. I'm Hiba Fisher. And I'm Razan Alzayani. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. One, two, three, one, two, three, testing, testing, one, all right. My real name is Basir Beria, which is I'm using now. Middle name, I get Ahmad, but I don't use it a lot. But people call me as a kite man. A lot of people kite me kite master. Originally, I'm from Afghanistan and full of history, experience. Basir is born in Kabul in 1961. And the place, the area I was born is called Karte Parwan. As one of six children, his family lived in a large, busy house built into a hill looking out over a valley. There was a houses all over. I mean, there was not, it was a beautiful place, you know, full of culture. Don't talk. When your parents talk, especially your parents, you not raise your voice. We grew up on those kind of things. The 1960s and 70s in Afghanistan were an era where Kabul was known as the Paris of Central Asia. It was beautiful. I mean, the jeans, the style, the wearing, the clothes. It was like Friday was uh, the new clothes coming in France. On Saturday was in Afghanistan. And there was the kite. I falling in love with the kite almost when I was a five, six years old. You know, it's kite was always there. It's in our system, it's on our blood. You no, know, I sometimes I think I it's too much now. I eat kite, I drink kite, I sleep kite. <laughs> it's a part of your system. You grow up with the kites. As a six year old, kite flying begins simply. Basir's father taught him how to build kites using the traditional method of tissue paper and bamboo. He would practice flying with his friends and the young children would watch the older boys and girls take on the more advanced sports of kite fighting. Basir and his friends would hover under the kites and when one kite would fall, the kids would run after to collect the spoils from the battle. It's like you don't know anything, you just Okay, we was running to collecting kites. You know, people's fight and you just, okay, after that kite get lost, 
and you're going to run and get the free kite. That's, the thing. <laughs> uh, that's what the kite, the kite runner means. You have to collect as many kites as you can. When I was a kid, I was running for the kites to grab, you know, come home happy. Hey, I got that kite. And I got that much strength from that guy who was a, one of the greatest kite flyers. Hey, that's the strength. Would, a, would anyone after a kite fell, if you ran after a kite, would anyone want their kite back after you took it? Well, or it's you just... can buy it. <laughs> buy it back from you? Buy it back from me because that's your kite. You lost the ball and you would mean you, you don't have a no right on that kite anymore. Explain to me what the game is. So when, when I'm fighting your kite, like the end goal is I want to cut your line. Exactly. And then the game's over. The game's over. Okay. Simple as that. Men and women play. Young, old. Children, I see a person who was uh, 89 years old back that time. His beard was all the way to his belly button, white completely. He was one of the greatest fighters in my time and when I remember. And he was the happiest face when you see him every time. And, and unbelievable. I learned so much thing when I see the kite flying people. It's the nicest people. It's the humblest person. Why? The reason every time you ask, hey, God, you see, you look up. Looking up to the sky it's from every religion. If you say God, you're going to raise your up. And we as a kite fly always look up. It's kind of beautiful things. Basir tells me, in addition to the art of building the kite and drawing beautiful designs with pen and the tissue paper, a painstaking process that can take months for just one kite because tissue paper rips so easily. There's also the art of building your line, the string you fly your kite with. And this one's... It's my own spool, my own cutting line. I made it. What, what is it made out of? It's a, it's a cotton line. It's a glass coated. Glass? Glass. It's a sharp object. We grind the glass, become a face powder. The dust of the glass we have, we coat it here. I knew nothing about this world, so he showed me. So, hold it. He held up a normal, uncoated line of string the legs of which you could find at any store. Feel it. It's impossible to break. You can pull a car with that. Then he held up his own string, coated with glass powder. Oh, you can feel the difference too. Yeah, so the normal string is really smooth. The glass-coated one, it's, it's crusty. It almost feels like you're running your fingers over a child's glitter art project, is what it felt like. I'm going to show you something. Hold it two lines. So we need another person, but it's okay. <laughs> I have Hold it tight. Okay. 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 What's happened to that big line? You cut Look, it. That's what you have. And that's what's in the bottle. We're using those cutting lines. Basir learned the method from his father. They would mix glass powder with boiled rice water, which is sticky and acts like a very strong glue. Regular glue, he tells me, would make the string vulnerable to cracking. They then would hand coat each millimeter of the line, sometimes thousands of feet of spool. And as the final touch, each kite maker would add his own secret ingredient to the recipe. I tried, but <laughs> Basir wouldn't let his secret slip. I'm not going to say 100% of what I put it and how I do it. Everybody have his own secret. That's what the weapon is. And that's, that's the killer. That's a samurai. As you can imagine, glass cuts string just as much as it cuts fingers, sometimes to the bone. But Basir prefers to fly without gloves. 
because he likes to feel the movements of the kite in his fingers. As a young boy, his technique developed over time. As Basir got better at flying and fighting kites, the battles escalated in intensity. He'd fly from the stone fences and would often climb up on his roof to give his kite the clearest path towards the skies. You know, you're going to jump from one roof to the other roof because how excitement is, your neighbors watching, and you put myself a few times from two-story house downstairs. I broke my arms a few times. I broke my fingers a couple times. And that's, that's what's happened. It's part of the game. What is the signal to say, okay, we're fighting now? You're in the sky. You means you are ready to fight. Okay, let's go. Basir's life in Kabul was, in many ways, idyllic. Playing with the neighborhood kids, flying kites on his rooftop. And then, everything changed. In Moscow, the arguments were mounting in favor of using an invasion to remove armies. I was that time around 14, 15 years old when it happened. One day wake up, see a Russian soldier on your street, start from there, explosion. And everybody was running like it's, it's, it's a war. During the cold winter of 1979, a brutal war began, hinging on the heels of a civil crisis that had been brewing in the country for quite some time. We're just going to give you a little bit of a summary to put this all in context. So Soviet forces invaded Afghanistan and the Soviet-Afghan war raged on for nine years. Afghani insurgent groups known as the Mujahideen fought against the imposed communist government of the Soviet army. And during that time, it's estimated that over one million civilians died in this conflict. And we lost so many people. There is, you cannot find any house in Afghanistan, especially in Kabul. Back that time, not lost two, three, four person in their household. Afghani society became extremely polarized. You against them or you against, against them? My father even tell me every day, but Sunny, be careful the way you talk. Be careful with your science teacher, for example. Be careful with your other teachers, you know. Even within families, you never knew who was allied with the Soviet government or with the Mujahideen and who would turn you in for being on the wrong side. Basir was a senior in high school at the time and started distributing flyers. We call it Shabnama. Shabnama is a Farsi term for a pamphlet that communicates a warning and is usually distributed discreetly. Basir's Shabnama was in support of the Mujahideen, the rebel forces. You are at the age of 16, 17 years old. Your blood is hot. You want to show yourself, you know, I'm doing a good thing. Basir's school principal found out and had him arrested. He was then thrown in prison. For the first three months, his family had no idea where he was. Because they're not going to tell your son is a prisoner. They're not going to tell, oh, your son is right here. My dad tried 100 of those prisoners in Afghanistan. He couldn't find me. First two months, I was in one room myself. You know, one room where I can lay down and there's toilet. That's it. I don't see outside. I don't see any other people. Only little door to get the food. That's all. To be a prisoner is, is not a, it's not a fun part. It's not a good thing to be think about it. I, I remember when I was there. Wake up one day, prisoners, thinking, and I said, "Great wall, fine kites. How beautiful it is." 
Basir began dreaming of flying his kite on top of the Great Wall of China. China because that's where kites were first made. And that dream gave him refuge as he sat in his cell, not knowing when and if he would ever be released. Inside in a prisoner, you think about something which is unbelievable on your pictures, to fly a kite on top of Great Wall and how beautiful the landscape, you know, releasing and flying and higher and higher. Eventually, eight months later, his father convinced a friend who worked for the government to issue Basir's release. When I get home, and that's it. And I said, son, what are you going to do? I can see of your move. I can see what, how, what you're doing. And you're going to end up again back in prisoner. Or you're going to be, maybe this time I was there. Next time I'm, I'm not going to be there. It's, it's not a kid's game anymore. Basir's brother had already left Afghanistan for Pakistan. And so his father arranged for Basir to do the same. My dad took me from home. It was around 11 o'clock in the morning times. The month was September. The air was slightly cool. And Basir left with his hat, his pakul, a few coins he liked to collect from childhood, and, of course, a string of kites. I didn't care about anything else. I don't know why. And the coin was in my pocket, and uh, a string, a string of kite. Somewhere I was in my left jacket, it was right there. That's it. And that was the only things I think about it, to put it in my pocket. Bazir's father took him to a container truck transporting medicine. He hugged his father goodbye and climbed into the truck as a passenger next to the driver, a friend of his father's who was regularly helping Afghanis flee across the border. We was riding from Kabul to Palicharhi. It was a route. I was sitting right in the front talking with the driver, you know, What's up and how to get out and all this. I see my dad's car, he was riding also. It's passing, going further. And I was looking, wondering, what's going on? Why my dad's going? Where he's going? What's going on? And then I see a distant, my dad's car, he was waiting for us to come. As soon as he saw our car track, he raised his hand to slow down. That's how we stop. My, the driver stopped and I get up, he come across. And the first thing he said, can I hug you one more time? I swear to God, he was asking me, can I hug you one more time? And I said, yes, daddy, come on. And I was, I was, you know, sometimes you say you drank and you're high. You know, that, that two type of things that's happened in your life. That time I was high, I was drunk, both of them. I didn't know what I did, how I, I reached Pakistan, how I... I survived seven days, seven nights walking from Jalalabad all the way to Peshawar. You know, if you're putting a cutting me with a knife, probably it was no blood coming. If you give me a bullet right here, has come through here, probably I was not having a feeling. By the, the time when I reached the place and that person told me, that's line that you see right there, you are not in Afghanistan anymore. And that was the toughest, toughest, toughest pain I ever had in my 55 years age. I remember exactly. I was crying that time. I said, that's it? That's, that's the country after that? It's not Afghanistan? I didn't believe it. I was 17 years old, 18 years old. And I said, that's it? 
all those passion I had for the country, all those things we put ourselves in dangerous, our life, we reach that moment and you're going to say bye. I, I remember every part of my body, it's just like nuts and bolts get loose. I feel it that way. I don't have a new culture. I don't have a new parents. I don't have a new blood. I don't have a nothing. Nothing. The place you born, the place you, you want to die for it. And you come that moment, you say, I want to give up. That's not, that's not easy. That's not easy. It's just like a, you say, oh, you're not my mother anymore. I don't know you anymore. How in the world can you say you don't have a no mother? Basir walked across the border into Pakistan, and his father had arranged for him to continue to Germany using a fake passport. He reunited with his brother in Pakistan, and the two flew on to Germany, where they spent the next five years there. Basir took classes at a local center, he studied German, and because he was always good at art, he studied fashion design too. On the side, he bus tables at a restaurant. Then one day, the brothers get a call from their father. He called me one day from India. Oh, we escaped the country, we are in India. He said, it's getting harder and harder every day. Then he said, it's enough, I cannot survive, I cannot live there. God gave, God take, that's what he said. My cousin came in Vegas, lived there. I don't know why Vegas, but he decided to be there. So next day he called me, said, we're going to go to United States. If you want to go, try to get yourself there. And we're going to get back together. You know, nothing's make me happier to get your, your family together. And in 1985, I come to United States and I go to Vegas. I hate it and I hate it and I hate it. Why? What, what house Las Vegas had besides gambling? Nothing else. You go to the restaurant, you have to go to a casino. What else do you can do as a kite flyer, as a person who likes to have that freedom of... Uh, to be on the beach, to be on the green area, flying kites. Las Vegas is a gambling in the desert. Since Basir was a young teenager in Afghanistan, his cousins in the U.S. living in Los Angeles would send enticing photos from L.A. So when Basir decided he couldn't stay in Las Vegas, he took his immediate family and resettled in Los Angeles. Basir, his two brothers, three sisters, parents, and extended family have been living next to each other in L.A. since 1985. Even though Basir and his family moved really far away from Kabul, Basir held on to those traditions that reminded him of home. He organized kite festivals across the country, he fought in competitions, he often won— And he also hosted kite-building workshops or Afghani culture lectures at local schools. And at one point, he owned a convenience store where he sold sodas and cigarettes alongside kites he built and hand-designed. And then in 2006, after completing a graphic design course, he receives a phone call. One day I was at home, I got the message under my phone, said, Hi, Basir, this is Leslie McLean. Uh, I'm from DreamWork. And uh, they called so many times, I didn't I was not answer. So what I thought about it, when the DreamWork called, you know, because I was given the resume of my graphic design, it said DreamWork. I didn't know, I swear to God, I didn't know what DreamWorks mean. I thought there is an agency of a work, 
and define your dream work. So I said, wow, maybe they find a good job for me, dream work. So I pick up the phone, dial the number and call Hi, this is And did you call me about the working? No, that's a dream work. Uh, we call, I'm Leslie McLean, one of the producers for Kite Runner. I said, what's going on? He said, you read the book, The Kite Runner? I said, yeah, I read. I gave it some few people because I'm a kite. Whatever's come to the kite, I grab it, you know, anything. The Kite Runner was a best-selling novel in 2003. The book follows the story of a young Afghani boy growing up around the same time as Basir, flying kites and coming of age during the Soviet-Afghan war. Oh, and the author of the book, Khaled Hosseini, was actually a classmate of Basir's in school. So, a few years after the book shot to fame, DreamWorks picked up the right to turn it into a film, and that's when Basir gets this phone call. And Mark Fossa want to talk with you and want to see you and want to... I said, okay. The associate producer went on to say that they wanted to see Basir fly his kite because they were looking for a kite master to train all the actors how to fly and fight kites, as well as for someone who could design the kites in the film. I trained all those uh, 150 kids for the background, for the movie, the body language, the, the every, everything about it, and all those uh, practicing, you know, the, the hero of the movie, the Amir and Hassan. I trained them. If you don't pay attention, there is a million kite flyers. They can automatically see all the angle on the pictures. It looks fake because that person is flying is right here and the angle of the kite is right there, which is he's not flying. The other person is flying. It looks fake. You know, it's going to hurt that action. It's going to hurt the entire movie. Because the U.S. was still at war with Afghanistan in 2006, DreamWorks shot the film in Western China instead. Basir spent an entire year there with the cast and crew. And remember his vision that helped him get through those eight months in jail? The dream to fly his kite on the Great Wall of China? I said, it's over, you know, it's never happened. You know, from Afghanistan, traveling in China, that was my dream. And it's an impossible thing. But when we were shooting that movie, The Kite Runner, and one day I was uh, with a translator and they took me to the Great Wall and Always having my kite with me. I have a case traveling. And uh, I'm on top of Great Wall and pick up my kite and fly. First 15 minutes, I was kind of motionly, really couldn't believe it. First 15 minutes, was motion was so high, I could not believe it's happened. So finally, like uh, there is a voice coming behind my head, said, you know what, you waste, you're dumb, you're stupid, you're wasting every five seconds, every second of it, get up, don't blah, blah, just get up and pick up your kite and fly. And first things, I just jump and open my case and pick up one of, the kite, one of my favorite kites. And uh, because it's controllable and it's a very nice kite, so it's, it, I can do every move with it. I pick up the kite and fly it and fly it towards the tailgate really dark and I could not even see the kites and I put the kites on and come back to my hotel. Can I ask what do you do now? I, I work on Uber, I'm driving Uber and uh, flying kites, that's the two things I do and draw sometimes. Since Basir left Afghanistan in 1979, he hasn't returned. 
He talks about wanting to go back, to live as a normal Afghani family, but there's a resignation in his voice, like he knows the Afghanistan he wants to return to doesn't exist anymore. Most of his family is in the U.S. with him now because of that. And as for the kite, kite flying will always be deeply embedded within Afghani tradition. There was a period under the Taliban rule from 1996 until the early 2000s in Afghanistan when kite flying was banned nationwide for being un-Islamic, along with dancing, weather forecasting, and even bird keeping. Today, some pockets of Afghanistan are still majority Taliban-ruled, and these enforcements are still in place. Basir tells us that some avid kite flyers will fly clear plastic kites to go undetected, so that to a far-off Taliban soldier, it just looks like loose trash swirling in the wind. Looks like a people who was a good kite maker, they lost their feeling, they don't build any more kites. The people who was making cutting line, they're not interesting because their son was killed. The people who was like a good uh, kite builder, he's, he's in the jail. So somehow it's, it was kind of forgotten things. But for the Afghan, as soon as, as soon as they find they are safe right now, they start flying kites. And I see in the refugee camp, the little kids running for flying kites. That's, 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 you cannot, when I see that kind of moment and I see it in the camp, those having no pants, his butt is naked and his nose is running, but he's got a string on his line and having a plastic kite, a trash plastic kite built from his brother or his, someone's and he's happy and he's holding in it and he's having no shoes and the way that it, it looks to me and I said, you know what? You cannot take away dream from anybody. So just a quick clarification. You may be wondering why a Middle East podcast is telling a story from Afghanistan. Well, um, <laughs> when, when this story came up, we never thought twice about whether to include it or not. Certainly with the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in the early 2000s, we we certainly grew up in a Middle East where Afghanistan was always very much part of the region. Like it, it was just it, it kind of got implicated into the rest of the Middle East. And I also feel that, like you said, like maps are ever changing. People are constantly on the move and, and like, what is, the, I mean, it ultimately begs the question of, like, what is the Middle East? Is it people that speak Arabic? Is it people that are tied by certain cultural values or religious values? I'm not sure, and I don't think we're really here to define that. So Middle East, greater Middle East, box it whatever which way you want. It was a no-brainer. This episode was produced by Hiba Fisher and myself, Razan Alzayani. Editorial support by Rabia Shabi. Fact-checking by Lily Crown. Sound design by Mohamed Khrezat. Credit to The Kite Runner Film, a 2007 production for some of the underlying audio that we used. Thank you to Basid and his family for opening up their homes to us in LA and teaching us about the wonderful world of kite fighting. If you've made it this far, that means you must really like us. And thank you for listening. If you have a quick second, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. We'd really appreciate it. <laughs>